You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. June 2021 marks 40 years since the first identified cases of what came to be known as HIV-AIDS. In today's show, we're exploring how a minister and his church in San Francisco responded to the AIDS epidemic, how that church provided ministry and guidance to a gay community devastated by sickness and death, and why knowing this history about AIDS matters today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Lynn Gerber. She is a scholar of religion whose first book is titled Seeking the Straight and Narrow, Weight Loss and Sexual Reorientation in Evangelical America. More recently, she has been researching how the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco, a Christian church that primarily serves LGBTQ Christians, responded to the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and 90s, when San Francisco was an epicenter of the AIDS epidemic. You can read her excellent article about this church and its minister during the AIDS crisis in the June issue of The Revealer, out June 3rd, at therevealer.org. Hi, Lynn. I'm very excited to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Great, me too. So what I'd like to do is just start with a little bit of history. So June 2021 marks the 40th anniversary since the first identified cases of what became known as HIV AIDS. So in June 1981, the CDC reported that five otherwise healthy gay men had a rare form of pneumonia, which struck the CDC as unusual and worth documenting. We now know that that pneumonia and other strange things that were afflicting gay men and and then some others was HIV, which had attacked their immune systems, making them susceptible to an array of diseases and infections. But at the time, HIV had not been identified by scientists, so no one knew why people were getting sick and dying, which also meant there wasn't a clear plan on how to address the situation. And because there was a widespread impression that this deadly situation primarily Primarily involved gay men or gay men and IV drug users. It really took several years and lots of activism for the government to invest much money and resources in dealing with this epidemic. So to start, Lynn, I'd love for you to paint a picture for us of what San Francisco was like, especially for the gay community in the 1980s. For people who don't know really any of this history, how would you describe San Francisco in this period of the 1980s and early 90s? Well, looking back on it, I would say that it was a time of a lot of contradiction in that it was a place that was haunted with a lot of illness and a lot of death. People were very, very sick. They were visibly sick and a lot of people were dying. But there was also a very vivid, collaborative, organized response to AIDS that was very creative in thinking about it now in responding to the epidemic on a community basis and on an institutional basis. Hmm. So when you're thinking on like the basis of what day-to-day life was for gay people in the gay community in San Francisco in the 80s, A lot of gay people in San Francisco lived in very concentrated neighborhoods, the Castro being sort of the exemplary neighborhood. And in those neighborhoods, AIDS was very visible. This was not an invisible disease in these places. Hmm. 
And what that meant is you'd be walking down the street in the Castro and you'd see young men walking with walkers Hmm. or being pushed in wheelchairs. A lot of people walking with IV poles so they could get um, intravenous liquid or nutrition um, as they lived their day-to-day lives. Illness was very visible. People had visible markers of the disease on their bodies that could be seen. Hmm. It was not especially hidden in San Francisco. The other thing that was happening sort of emotionally in the gay community is that people were dealing with very intense, difficult emotions. Hmm. The fear of illness for themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. people saw people who were visibly sick and then knew what they had been had done in their past that may have put them at risk for getting sick. So their own fear and vigilance about their own health was sure. very intense. People were also deeply engaged in the labor of caregiving. So people were Hmm. doing people's laundry. They were doing hospital visits. They were grocery shopping for them. They were running interferences with their parents back in Omaha or wherever. There was a lot of emotional caretaking that was happening for people who were sick and dying on the part of people, some of whom were healthy, some of whom were sick but not yet dying, and some of whom were walking that line. Hmm. The other piece of emotional work that was going on on the community level was remembering the debt, which was a lot of work because there were a lot of debts. So this looked like going to funerals. It looked like creating panels for the names quilt, which started in San Francisco. And it meant the work of grief and it meant grieving losses, some of which were very intimate, the loss of a partner, the loss of a best friend, the loss of a roommate. But there were also these losses that were more sort of socially remote, but they were the kind of people that made your universe feel stable. So the guy who drove your bus or the person who gave you a haircut or the bartender who always gave you a free drink after 11, those people also got displaced from this world. And those were also losses that had to be grieved. So that's sort of like the personal community level of what was happening in San Francisco. But what was happening institutionally was actually very innovative. And in the early 80s, San Francisco responded by developing what was called the San Francisco model of care. And this became sort of the model of AIDS care for the world. And this model, it relied on a collaboration between nonprofit organizations, hospitals, and an army of volunteers, really, that worked together to try to minimize the kind of time that people with AIDS spent in the hospital and to make their lives as normal as possible by Mm. providing emotional support, listening ears, um, caring hearts, that kind of thing. And then the real pragmatic support, like how are we going to get this person from the bed to the bathroom? How is this person's dog going to get fed and walked while Mm. it's happening? Um, How are they going to get rides to a doctor's appointment? And where are they going to sit while they wait for half an hour for the doctor to be ready? So San Francisco as a city developed this fantastic model. And then as time went on in the late 80s and early 90s came, it too was swamped by the magnitude of AIDS. Hmm. So it was a time of this great innovation, this great set of possibilities for healthcare. And yet even that was not enough and people burnt out, organizations fell apart, hmm. um, people were overwhelmed and and the models didn't work for all communities that were affected by AIDS. So hmm. there was a lot happening in San Francisco yeah. in the 80s and 90s. 
Thank you. That's a very helpful picture for us. Since you sort of ended with talking about institutions and how they were responding, I'd like to then focus on this church that you've been researching for the past several years, the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco, which some eventually started to refer to as an AIDS church. So could you tell us a bit about this church, maybe even before the epidemic? So was this a a large community, tiny community of lesbian and gay and bisexual? sexual and transgender Christians, you know, why were people drawn to it? And then what role did the church play in starting to respond to the epidemic? So MCC San Francisco was the second congregation founded as part of the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches, which is a very long way of describing what became the first gay positive Christian denomination Hmm. in the United States, unequivocally, unapologetically Hmm. gay positive church. The San Francisco church was the second church to be founded under its rubric. And it was founded in the city in a gay bar and in the upstairs room in a gay bar named Jackson's. And it was started by a man named Howard Wells, who had never been a minister. He hadn't had any ministerial training, but he had gone to the original MCC church in Los Angeles, really liked it, was spending every weekend flying back and forth between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And then he was like, I think it's time to start a church here because I cannot afford to keep flying every (laughs) weekend back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> from to LA just to go to church. So the church was founded in 1970 and some of its early leadership was very deeply involved in some of the other major gay institutions at the time. Hmm. The church inhabited a paradoxical space. On the one hand, it was an established institution. It had very visible gay leaders at its helm. It had uh, it was sort of a religious public face of San Francisco. In 1979, it purchased a building in the Castro, so it hmm. had a physical location in the gay mecca of San Francisco. On the other hand, the gay community in San Francisco was super suspect of organized religion in all its forms for a lot of reasons. Part of that is because of the ascendant religious right and its attacks and its ramping up attacks on homosexuality. And in part because in San Francisco, there was a really vibrant counterculture that fed what we now think of as the whole spiritual but not religious position Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. really tried to divorce spirituality from organized religion and church looks suspect. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, MCC in 1980 is kind of a robust, visible institution with a physical presence in the congregation. There are probably about 100 people going to church uh, Mm. who were formal members of the church at that time, and probably at least that many who just came to church on a Sunday. On the other hand, a lot of people in the gay community, particularly the younger generation who are more inspired by Stonewall and gay liberation and that kind of thing, just viewed the whole thing with a very skeptical eye. They were like, I'm not so sure about this Christian (laughs) church business. I think this may be an undercover religious right thing. The whole thing is a little weird, and I'm not not entirely sure about it. It was a kind of paradoxical institution in 1980. Right. So then take us then now from that to then as this mysterious disease is starting to spread and then there's more of awareness of it as we get into the mid-1980s, what role then does this church play in San Francisco? Well, one of the important earliest roles that it played is that it owned a building and it was one of the few gay and lesbian owned pieces of real estate in the city at the time. And it had a sanctuary. It had a big space for people, for a lot of people to meet. 
So it became the site of the first town halls in hmm. the gay community about what this disease was. It's where the San Francisco Depu Department of Public Health officials and the um, San Francisco General Hospital doctors would come and try to communicate what was happening, what they saw happening, what this disease was, what it looked like, what it felt like, what the symptoms were, how to think about it. Those very first public conversations happened in the building of MCC San Francisco. Huh. The other thing that a building allowed was it provided a space for funerals and particularly funerals for people who weren't part of traditional churches, were alienated from traditional churches, but had a lot of people who wanted to mourn them. MCC provided a space for them. And then as the epidemic developed, it provided a space for almost every kind of AIDS group and organization you can imagine, from support groups for people with AIDS to support groups for caregivers with AIDS to the first direct action groups um, about AIDS, like ACT UP, Mobilization Against AIDS. Those groups all met at MCC San Francisco. MCC San Francisco wasn't the only site, but its building made it a really important space where the entire community, whether they were sketchy in relation to MCC or not, were able to gather to process what was happening. For the congregation itself, the situation was a bit more complicated. They were spared some of the early deaths. They didn't have the same kind of early death toll as some other gay organizations had in San Francisco. Um, and while they had been part of some of the earlier conversations about the development of this San Francisco model of AIDS care, they didn't want to repeat any of the work that other groups were doing. If a group like the Shanti Project, which was the major AIDS organization at the time, was able to organize hundreds of volunteers to bring food to people. They didn't want to start a parallel program to bring food to people, but they weren't quite sure where to fit in that ecosystem. But as time went on and the need to continue to grow, first of all, the problem of replication didn't matter so much because there was so much need. You could replicate quite a lot and it didn't matter. But they also realized that there were very few spaces that were taking up specifically religious questions in relationship to AIDS. And so much of the larger American American discourse about AIDS were taken up with really ugly religious and theological messages about the disease itself, about the people who got it, and about the ultimate fate of the people who got it. And MCC San Francisco saw for itself the possibility of providing a real religious space to counter those issues head on and to really build a space where gay and lesbian people could build religious lives as gay and lesbian people as they face the kind of life and death existential questions that AIDS raised. I guess I would like to then stay with that and hear a bit more about the the minister for this community during uh, the latter part of the 80s and the 1990s. So your article for the Revealer's June issue uh, primarily focuses on uh, the Reverend Jim Mikulski, who took up a position at MCC San Francisco in 1986. How would you describe what his life was like as this community's minister those first several years that he was at MCC San Francisco? Well, Jim Mikulski is a fascinating character. He comes to MCC San Francisco in his 20s. He had been a minister at the MCC congregation in New York. He had done early work with people with AIDS from the very beginning of the epidemic as it emerged there in that city. And when he came to San Francisco, he was young, but he was also more experienced with AIDS than almost any other minister and MCC minister in the hmm. country. And he was a very religious man, which may not sound too remarkable as a minister in a church, 
But the thing that always strikes me when I think about Jim is that he, he described himself as somebody who has the charism of faith. He is a believer. And I say in the article that for a city that really wanted to separate spirituality from religion, he really wanted to bring them together. He was spiritual and religious. Mm. And he believed that very traditional church-like things could speak directly to what was happening in the AIDS crisis. Mm. So when we think about his early years at MCC San Francisco, he was working in a lot of different Mode, pastoral modes that really tried to address AIDS. And one was as a liturgist and the way in which he tried to set up the religious life of MCC San Francisco. Jim has a long-standing interest in hymnody, in church music, and in the way the traditional kind of canon of church music can bring a congregation together and express a shared sentiment. So for example, some of the, the songs that they started singing actively in the congregation took issues of life and death very head on. There is an old gospel song called When We All Get to Heaven. It's like a it's like a get up on your feet, jump and clap kind of song. Mm. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. If you heard it walking by, you would think that you were hearing a standard evangelical song. But in that uh -huh. church, with a lot of men who were very sick and were going to be dying soon, and mm. were being told by the culture mm -hmm. that not only were they sick because they were sinful, but that they were going straight to hell. And that if they thought AIDS was bad, they had a lot more to worry about, about what would happen after they die and the kind of eternal damnation they would face. A church that got up every Sunday and said, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be, hmm. turned this almost cliched, a little bit hackneyed gospel song into a whole new kind of queer Christian truth that was this very radical act and a very moving to the people engaged in it that the act of getting up and singing that song became a way to resist the religious message that they were getting so that was one aspect of his early years yeah. as a community minister i'm going to mention a couple of others one is that he was a pastor and he had to attend to all these pastoral needs so he spent a lot of time in those early years visiting the sick he did a lot of hospital visits he did a lot of deathbed confessions and he did a lot, a lot, mm. a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of funerals. But he also mm. did a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of holy unions, which were kind of an early form of gay marriage. And he was doing them for a couple of different reasons, but they were really building a lot in this period. One reason is that a lot of people were dying and they wanted their relationships to be consecrated before their deaths. And so in this context, mm. a lot of men, um, one or both of whom were very sick in the couple, would ask him to marry them in days or weeks before they died, making commitments like till death to us part in a context in which that was no joke. That was no far distant fantasy. Yeah. That was like this week or next for both of us. There was a real desire to have what was sacred be recognized. So I also want to address, you know, so we've talked to this point largely about AIDS in the gay community, but AIDS, of course, was not a gay disease. And sadly, many heterosexuals contracted HIV because they believed they were not at risk. Uh, solely because of their own sexual identities. So as HIV spread throughout heterosexual communities, were there ways that the MCC congregation in San Francisco also responded as this broadened out? I'll say that rather than think of it as sort of the distinction between the heterosexuality and the homosexuality of AIDS or like yeah. how it spread in those various communities, I think of it more in terms of the non-gay communities in which AIDS proliferated, where 
there may have been gay people, there may have not have been gay people, there may have been visibly gay people, there may have been closet gay people, but sexuality wasn't sort of the locus of identification where these diseases, where the disease spread, but that MCC also tried to find a way to engage. And there's a couple of examples that I can think of. One is a community of people who were struggling with substance abuse in one way or the other. IV drug use was a huge vector for the literal transmission of the virus from person to person through the use of shared yeah. needles. But substance abuse in general, alcoholism, other kinds of other kinds of uses of substances that lowered a person's ability to safeguard their acts that would allow them to prevent the transmission of HIV was also a very big issue in the gay community and in San Francisco at large. And MCC engaged a lot in issues of substance and substance abuse. For one, it hosted hmm. dozens and dozens of AA meetings, NA meetings, Al-Anon meetings. I mean, every kind of anonymous meeting you could imagine, yeah. they met at MCC San Francisco. And because they met at MCC San Francisco, the congregation's membership grew because people who were in Alcoholics Anonymous, who were turning toward a higher power and looking for a spiritual community to think about a higher power, but were not so much with the Jesus or whatever, they found this church that they were meeting in a great space for that. So a lot of people who were struggling with addiction issues were finding a spiritual home in MCC, whether they were gay or not, or nobody knew if they were or weren't. Another thing MCC did was that they partnered with Prevention Point, which was the um, the needle exchange program in San Francisco. And they partnered with them to mm. provide meals for folks who were standing in line exchanging their needles as part of a call to feed people in the city and in part to support needle exchange as an activity. They also, and this is a bit of a counterintuitive one, they were also involved with the distribution of medical marijuana in the mid-90s. So what happened in the mid-90s is that the federal government cracked down on the buyers clubs in San Francisco. Buyers clubs were organizations that obtained a range of substances that were used for the treatment of AIDS. So AIDS was a completely novel disease. Nobody had seen it before and nobody knew how to treat it. And one of the real frustrations of the disease for people suffering so vividly with it is that the timeline for developing treatment options in accordance with medical science was super, super, super slow. Meanwhile, people who were very sick and looking for any kind of relief were experimenting with a wide range of things that laid outside of the formal scientific purview of medical treatment some of which later proved to have some kind of efficacy. Some seemed to be like, you know, yeah. uh, comfort, but not having any kind of scientific evidence, some things in between. But buyers clubs connected people to that wide range of kinds of alternative treatments. So, for example, ribavirin was a medication that a lot of people thought helped with certain AIDS symptoms that was not available in the United States, but was widely available in Mexico. And buyers clubs would organize buying trips to Mexico to obtain considerable quantities of ribavirin and bring them back to cities and distribute them to people with AIDS there. That's one kind of thing. With the question of marijuana came up, marijuana was a very useful intervention for HIV in part because of its pain relief, but in part because it stimulated hunger. And AIDS was a real wasting disease. And 
people didn't have appetite. So people really turned to pot as a way to get people hungry, like literally hungry, to make them want to eat food. Um, So it was very much a part of AIDS treatment, but it was not part of formal scientific AIDS treatment. Of course, it was illegal federally. So when the federal government decided to crack down on the medical marijuana dispensaries, which work alongside the buyer's clubs in San Francisco, MCC, in part because it hosted one of the big buyer's clubs in San Francisco, got engaged and Jim Matulski himself personally got involved with distributing medical marijuana to people with AIDS illegally, but publicly as an act of resistance against the federal crackdown on medical marijuana. Other kinds of of these kinds of HIV communities where HIV was spreading and the question of sexuality was more obscured or less discussed um, was in the Black Church, uh, which is a place that Matulski and the San Francisco congregation, which was a largely but not exclusively white and very gay congregation, was interested in, in part because the congregation really saw the civil rights movement as its precursor and saw itself as having Hmm. a big debt, a big historical debt to the civil rights movement in terms of gay people understanding their own struggle for civil rights. They also saw in African-American churches fellow Christians and MCC, most MCC participants, particularly in the early days, were Christians and wanted to develop relationships with other Christians as Christians in a lot of different ways. The black church Hmm. was just one place. But the black church was also getting impacted by AIDS. And that was noticeable in some of the black churches in the in the community. So early on, in, in one of the earliest things that Matulski and Bob Crocker and other MCC leaders did was they developed a relationship with an African-American church in the Bayview called the Double Rock Baptist Church, which was in no way a gay affirming church, no, in no way an LGBT friendly church. It was none of those things, but it was a church that was impacted by AIDS. And they decided that despite the fact that they had a very deep theological difference about homosexuality and nobody had any mistake about that, like MCC mm-hmm. knew that Double Rock was not so much into homosexuality. Double Rock knew that MCC was, in fact, totally into homosexuality. But they decided that AIDS was more important. And they started this annual Mm. gospel music fundraiser for AIDS where the two choirs would come together, sing a concert every year, and try to raise money for AIDS-related issues, organizations, that Mm. kind of thing. And to build a relationship as fellow Christians using AIDS as a way to bring people together and to not make sexuality the kind of dividing line and particularly the kind of racial dividing line that it would become. And then the third example I would bring, what I would just raise is the question of women with AIDS, which again, sexual orientation, who knows? But MCC was very involved in fundraising for particularly one of the earliest shelters for women with AIDS that allowed children in. One of the biggest problems in providing care for women with AIDS is that children needed a place to go when their mothers were hospitalized or kicked out of their homes or had no place to go. MCC was involved in a lot of the early fundraising for that. It also, because of its fabulous building, provided a space for some of the earliest um, sex worker organizations to have a space to meet it and hosted one of the early Hmm. conferences for Coyote, um, which was a group called uh, Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, which was a sex workers' rights (laughs) organization that held one Hmm. of its first conferences specifically related to AIDS MCC San Francisco in the mid 80s. So there were a lot of non-gay identified communities that were impacted by HIV that MCC tried to partner with where they could sort of bracket sexual identity, let it be ambiguous if people wanted it to be ambiguous, but still try to fight the disease. Fascinating. Thank you. So the last question I would like to ask you today is, as someone who has been researching and writing about the AIDS epidemic, 
Why do you think it is important for Americans to better understand this period of our history here at the 40th anniversary of the first identified cases? What does learning more about the AIDS crisis do for us or help us to understand more clearly? Well, I think it helps us understand a lot of things at a lot of different levels of American society. And if you asked me this question three years ago, I'd have had a very different answer than I do now, or at least a somewhat different answer than I do now. Or at least some of my answers would be more intensified. And one of the answers that would be more intensified would be about the politics of AIDS and the rise of the Christian right, the willingness of the federal government to completely dismiss, underplay, and ignore a fatal disease and to let people die. I don't know I would have appreciated how much AIDS was a precursor and a pattern for a federal political response as it has proven to be. And I think for that reason, it's very critical to understand what happened in the the AIDS years in terms of understanding the United States of America, public health, and the way the right wing is willing to use public health as a weapon and frankly, willing to let people die. And AIDS is a real lesson in that. It's also a really important lesson. I think that so much has changed with how, with gay life in the United States, its visibility, its at least perceived acceptance, its um, evident, its celebration, its, its very vivid celebration in some circles in American culture, that it's easy to forget what a struggle it was to get there and the price paid and the lives lost um, to get to that place for all of the benefits of the place we're in today and all of the drawbacks of the place we're in today, to not understand how what people lived through to get there and the circumstances in which I find it very hard to convey to people who didn't experience that time, how deeply closeted people were, how deeply shameful the disclosure of sexuality was. And to have that disclosure Hmm. be accompanied by a fatal, terrifying disease that even doctors can barely stand to look at and touch. The level of existential dread that that generated I think as a as a story of American culture and just of humanism, not to mention the history of the gay rights movement, is really very critical. And then the other piece that, that I am particularly very personally interested in is that I think AIDS has a lot to tell us about morality and the ways in which we as a society moralize certain diseases and people with certain mm. diseases, people who are sick, people who die, people who are in the process of dying, and how that moralization takes us away from people who are mm-hmm. suffering and how, in my view, it actually implicates us morally. And I think that HIV has a tremendous amount to teach us about that. Interesting. Thank you. There's so much there that's great for discussion. And uh, so I'm excited for everyone to read your article in The Revealer. I'm excited for there to be more that you'll be writing for all of us to read. So thank you for all of this and for this interesting conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest. Yes, Dr. Lynn Gerber. You can find her article about Reverend Jim Matulski, the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco, and the AIDS epidemic in the June issue of The Revealer, published June 3rd at therevealer.org. I'd also like to say a big thanks to Anna Donge, production editor of this podcast and editorial assistant at The Revealer, whose time at The Revealer comes to an end this month. Anna was instrumental in helping launch this podcast and in making it a success. We can't thank her enough and wish her all all great things in the future. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing Holocaust tourism and why the numbers of tourists to Holocaust memorial sites has been on a steady rise for the past several years. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org. Thank you.